Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. On today's episode of Flourishing Together, we have two people who uh, have some pretty special meaning uh, to the Junto Institute, as does everybody um, who's been through our program in their own unique ways. Our first guest is Jen Davis, uh, one of our alumni and now a member of our team. And our second guest is Jay Rudman, uh, who is not only a Junto mentor, uh, but is also the CEO of one of our alumni companies. We're going to get things uh, kicked off with uh, Jen Davis, uh, who, as I mentioned, is not only one of our alumni, but uh, recently joined our team as a partner. And Jen graduated uh, two years ago with a digital marketing agency that went through the Junto Institute's apprenticeship program. And spurred by the growth that she experienced both during and after the program, she decided to make a career change. And while I had not been actively looking for someone uh, to join our team, uh, the opportunity to have one of our alumni and someone who had been through the transformation that she has been through uh, was too good to pass up. So we were fortunately able to make things work, and I am thrilled to now have her on board. She leads our uh, Junta Women initiative, and we'll be building uh, deeper relationships with our other alumni companies over time, and we'll continue to take on even more responsibility as uh, the Junto Institute grows. As you'll hear shortly, she's a story of not only growth from an emotional and psychological standpoint, but also a very inspiring tale to tell about how motivated she became to improve her physical health and in particular, her weight. Uh, She's a living embodiment of the transformation and flourishing that we know uh, Junto is capable of helping people with. And so I'm thrilled to introduce you to Jen Davis and my conversation with her. Good morning, Jen, and uh, welcome to Flourishing Together. Thank you, and good morning to you, Raman. Uh, So how are you feeling? I am feeling a lot of things. Um, I'll start off with enthusiastic for being here um, and this opportunity. This is my first podcast, so um, excited to be here. Also a little bit nervous being the first one, um, but also very happy, content, um, peaceful. Um, anytime I'm at Junto, either with tribe members, alumni, apprentice, you, um, just always a very happy place in my heart. I am feeling warm hearted and a little eager and delighted and pleased. Uh, had a really good workout this morning. Um, as you noted, it's a spectacular day outside, uh, here in Chicago and uh, had a couple fun things um, that emerged this this morning when I first came into the office. So uh, in a good place, feeling some joy and love there. So let's dive right in and um, hear about your first recollection of leadership. So it was funny when I thought about this. I was about, it was either 16 or 17. Um, my first job, I was in high school at the time. It was between my junior and senior year. I worked for an alarm monitoring place. Um, so when somebody's burglar alarm went off, we're the ones that called the police. 
And um, my supervisor at the time was uh, pregnant and she called in sick and nobody wanted to take over the supervisory role for that shift. And I decided to go ahead and do it. It was dollar more per hour, so why not? Um, and it involves scheduling breaks and lunches and handling um, uh, angry clients, customers, um, if something went wrong. And I handled it pretty well. Um, and I was actually surprised that nobody really wanted to do it. Um, and eventually when my supervisor uh, went on maternity leave, they asked me to do it. It was just a part-time job for me. So it was just two days a week, Saturdays and Sundays. Um, and I did it. And I really excelled at it. And I think the the one thing that really struck me, though, is that um, a couple weeks into the temporary role as a su- shift supervisor, one of the managers, my my boss, was unfortunately sexually harassing one of my team members. And upper management was trying to figure out what to do. They asked me to be kind of the in-between um, between them. And this was a, a friend of mine as well uh, on the team. And it lasted about a week before they were able to uh, do something and actually fire the manager. Um, but it was a very difficult week. He was he he understood what I was I was the in between all of a sudden trying to protect her in a lot of different circumstances. And he really really made my life hard for that week. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was the first servitude leadership. And I remember, you know, she was a friend of mine as well. Like I said. But she was really appreciative that I was there for her, that, you know, I was trying to protect her. I was trying to just, you know, do whatever I could. And she really appreciated it. And I just, I guess I just didn't understand that until many years later. You know, certainly I I knew her appreciation then, um, but I didn't understand what it meant and how important that is to leadership. Um, You know, 16 or 17 and I was already doing it. I just didn't know it. As I shared in my intro, you have a unique relationship with us here at Junto, and it's uh, kind of continuing that evolution um, with you joining our team. But let's kind of go back to the very beginning. And I haven't talked a whole lot about this uh, so far on this podcast. And what I mean by this is our forums. And for those who aren't as familiar with it, uh, we, uh, as part of our program, run these leadership forums that used to be for peers and now is for leadership teams. And they are designed so that the people who are members have a safe space for them to, to present and share challenges and issues that they're facing in their uh, professional and in some cases personal lives. And then to be able to uh, learn from the shared experiences and questions of their peers, uh, different approaches they could take to overcome them. Um, and then secondly, it's also a place where they uh, develop leadership skills. So I'm just providing some context there. Uh, we start all of these forums with something called the lifeline exercise. And that's where we're going to begin here with Jen. So you have remarked uh, several times about that very first Saturday, uh, which was a full day session. Um, it, we probably went from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. or something. And it was your Junto Forum when we did the personal lifeline exercise, and which you have done a couple times since then. Tell us what that experience was like, that lifeline experience, um, the first time around, and what it catalyzed in you, uh, recognizing that you're doing this in hindsight, um, which is both helpful and maybe even hurtful to some degree because you can't remember all the details. But tell us what, what happened in that first experience with the lifeline. Yeah, uh, I do remember it was 7 a.m. on Saturday morning, and something I'll talk about uh, 
as well as I was not a morning person then. So in fact, I made a joke as we were in River North at the time. And I made a joke about the last time I was, you know, in River North at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. I was heading home from partying the night before. So, and I remember everybody kind of looking at me going, what? You know, and that was just my perception. But I I remember going into the Lifeline and I was sick that day too. And I was flying out for business the next day. So a lot of stuff going on. And it was very emotional putting the lifeline together. Like I had, you know, I knew all this stuff. Of course, it's your lifeline. But when you're writing it down, it really makes you take a step back and really think about it and really go back into those moments. Um, And there were good moments and there were bad moments. But of course, you kind of stay in the bad moments a little bit. So I was one of the early ones to go. Part of it was not feeling uh, very well and my energy was being depleted. Um, so I wanted to kind of get it over with in a way um, so that I could, you know, just concentrate on everybody else. And it was extremely emotional. It was it was emotional just hearing a couple of people that went before me and their stories and just feeling their emotion and then telling my story, which was really hard. And I think as I reflect on it, I realized how miserable I was, you know, and it, it was a reflection of, you know, you put the... Um, your happiness scale. Um, and I was at a two or a three um, at that point and had been for quite some time in the four-year intervals I was doing. But it probably needed to be a zero um, and not even a two or a three when I look back at it now and where I'm at today. So I remember it being very emotional. I also remember I went home and uh, to my husband and I just started to cry. And he said, what's going on? And I said, you know, I shared too much. I went too deep. I went too personal. I'm so different from everybody else. And, you know, not only confidentiality, but I don't remember all the details, but, you know, part of my lifeline is I almost flunked out of college my freshman year, but ultimately went and got a master's degree. But in my mind, all I was concentrating on was I almost flunked out of freshman year where maybe everybody else in my group, like, you know, did fine in college. And I just felt like, wow, I'm exposed. They know I'm faking it. You know, it was the fake it till you make it, and I really got exposed by it. And I just, a lot in my uh, childhood, you know, divorced family. Um, I went to Catholic school. That was a very unique thing for me. There wasn't a lot of, you know, single parent children that I went to school with and stuff. So I've always been kind of ashamed, even though there's nothing to be ashamed about. My mom was was great, but I just felt like, wow, I grew up in the city, divorced. All these people went to the big state schools. Parents are still married. You know, everything's, you know, grew up in the burbs. Everything's wonderful. And I just felt like I shared too much and that I just, I wasn't part of the group. But then the amazing thing happened is as the forum went on, I was just accepted. I mean, they had their own issues. It just wasn't my, the same issues that I had. So maybe their parents were happily, you know, married, but maybe it wasn't happy. You know, mine just happened to be divorced. Um, those kinds of things. And I think what really did it for me is that everybody said in the forum at some point when I was down on myself, but Jen, look what you've overcome. You told us this story. Look what you've got going on in your life. And this is where you're at. And it really changed my perspective on myself because granted, my family, my husband, my mom, my sister are always like, rah, rah, you're doing great, Jen. But they're family. They have to say that in some in some ways. Although I do have the family that would tell me if I'm not doing well, like when I almost flunked out of college. Um, but I had a group of people that were telling me how amazing I was. And that was the first time I had heard that in a very long time outside of the family. 
So, you know, going through that lifeline and sharing those details with people, I I tended to use those details because I was ashamed of them to put a buffer between people of like, this is what I'm coming to the table with. If you don't want to deal with me because I'm coming to the table, let's stop this relationship now because I have abandonment issues because of my father abandoning me and things like that. So just leave now before I start to like you or you start to like me. And ultimately, though, that's what bonded that group is our shared experiences and what we brought to the table, both in that forum and to our business and to our families and our friends. So um, it really opened up my eyes. And like you said, I've done it multiple times. And even, you know, uh, last year with the management team, I had them bring up something from their childhood. And I had a team member that brought up something from their childhood. And immediately I was like, okay, now that explains it. Um, this team member had a, had a habit that annoyed me. But when I when it was revealed about her childhood, I completely understood why that was happening. And I could relate to it a bit, but I could also understand it and know that it wasn't just to annoy me or to make more work for me. It was because of their way of dealing with the situation from their childhood that they were still putting into present day. Um, so it's so important to sometimes know what people are coming to the table with. And that's what that that brought to me. It's amazing how vulnerability brings people closer rather than pushing them further apart. And you know, we we live in a in a world where I think conventional thinking is that it pushes people apart or pushes people away. Uh, and it's sometimes and, and it is. It can sometimes be a little scary when someone does it unexpectedly. But the beauty of that forum experience is it's a container in which one can be vulnerable. They don't have to, you don't have to be vulnerable, but you can be. And it's respected and appreciated partially because everyone is doing it. And so it changes the game. It's not all of a sudden someone thrusts it. You know, there's no such thing as TMI, too much information. It's whatever information each person considers to be enough for them. Thank you for sharing that. So you have been through quite an inspiring and life-changing um, period these last couple of years, physically, emotionally, and mentally. Describe the work that you've done, what has uh, resulted from that work, and where you see things headed in the future. Yeah, so a lot of things. Um, the biggest thing is probably the weight loss. And I shared this on LinkedIn and Facebook last week because it was a year since I really started focusing on it, July 30th, um, 2018, I finally got on the scale and it was 212.6 pounds. And I still use the 0.6 every time I say it because um, I don't want to round up to 213, but it's not rounding down to 212. And I don't know if that's my heaviest, but I feel like it was. And I wasn't feeling good. Um, part of it was overworking myself, taking on way too much and just no self-care. Part of it is I didn't think I deserved it. I, I felt like I needed to just keep going. And you know, some things that were working for me, I doubled down on, but doubling down on it made them not work anymore. You know, It's kind of like if you're working 40 hours a week and it's working for you, so you put in 80, you become less effective. So I decided, okay, I've got to get in better shape. And if maybe I take a few pounds off, I'll feel better and can can start concentrating on myself. I mean, at that weight, I just didn't feel like I deserved anything. So I did this on my own, um, just started watching calorie intake, making better food choices, um, 
working out, I bought a bike and started bike riding. I started swimming at the gym. My husband and I both joined the gym. And that was nice because he needed to do some physical activity too. Um, so we were kind of bouncing off each other. And a year later, I am down 66 pounds. Um, I hit 145 on the scale this week. So I have about five more pounds to go to my goal, um, which is a normal weight and a normal BMI. So I'm excited. Um, I have to do all new clothes shopping, which is also exciting as well. Whole new, whole new outfits. Um, so that was the, that was probably the start of it. As I started to feel better, I started to do things. Um, I would go out for a walk and started to notice things around me. I started walking at the Morton Arboretum, which was right across from the office at the time. And, you know, there's sections of its flowers and then there's deep wood sections. And, you know, I'd see a coyote or a hawk and, you know, things I kind of noticed before. We have a lot of hawks where I live, but I never really stopped and like looked at it. You know, it's kind of like stop and smell the roses. And I started to do that for myself and I started to take care of myself. You know, I got regular haircuts. I went and got a massage. I went and got my nails done. You know, things that I just made excuses. I don't have time. I don't deserve it. I started to do those things because I started realizing that the well was dry and there was a lot of people coming to the well and I was just giving every drop I had to them and none to myself. And eventually I became not effective anymore. I was not a human being. I was a human doer and it was really draining on me. And I would snap at people because it was just like, I can't take any more of your stuff. I've got my own stuff. And that wasn't fair to a lot of people. I remember having a very vivid argument with my husband over a gratin potatoes for Christmas. And eventually I disinvited him to Christmas. Um, and so I needed to stop doing that. Wait a minute. You disinvited- I disinvited my husband, husband. to my mother's Christmas. To your mother's Christmas, Christmas dinner. Yes. Dinner. Yes. Over a gratin potatoes. And this was in the last couple of years? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wasn't this past year. It was the year before. So how did he respond to that, by the way? So my husband's one of those where he he kind of doubles down a little bit, so he'll he'll egg me on. But then he stopped at one point because he knew that this was completely illogical. And, you know, his thing is like, okay, fine, Jen, you know, do what you got to do. Um, of course, got the phone call from my mother of like, you can't not invite Chris. And it's like, okay, yes, you're right. But he just, he let it go because he knew, he knew where it was coming from. But really, your point here is that you were in such a different place back then, mentally and emotionally, that you went to that place of disinviting your own husband to your own mother's family uh, Christmas dinner. And you guys have been together for years. You and, you and your husband have been together for years. So it's not like you just got married and you're still discovering each other, right? But it's more a reflection of, it wasn't a reflection of the relationship or the marriage. It was a reflection of purely you. Yes. My husband and I have been together for over 30 years um, and our relationship is wonderful, except in moments when I do that, of course. And obviously he has his moments as well. But yeah, it was, I was having so many issues outside of our relationship, but it just manifested in our relationship because it's easier to let it out on a loved one than it is to on a coworker or, you know, in public or where else. So, um, and he knew it and he was in a lot of different ways, he was challenging me of, you know, that I was working too much, that I wasn't taking care of myself. But 
I was just making excuses of the work's got to get done and I'm the only one to do it or I don't deserve this or we can't afford this or whatever it, it was. And so I was getting a little annoyed that he kept telling me I needed to do this um, because just telling me to do it wasn't enough for me. It was more of an annoyance in telling me that. I hadn't figured it all out yet. So yeah, completely different mindset. Okay. So let's um, move a little further in the timeline from 2018 I'm sorry, from 2017 to 2018, which is last year, uh, when you were in our first masterclass on leading with emotional intelligence. And um, it became clear to me that you were working really hard, not just on your weight during that time, but also on building your emotional health and emotional fitness, especially those first two levels of self-awareness and self-management, which, um, as you know, we uh, tout as being the the places to begin, uh, because until we gain mastery over ourselves, it's hard for us to uh, start responding to how we interact with people. Um, and then, as the instructor of that program, it was inspiring for me to see how seriously you were taking it. Tell me what was behind that motivation that you had, um, which which I saw probably prior to July thirtieth when you began your your weight loss regimen. Um, what was behind that motivation? When, when did you start spreading? the message to others about how they also could become better versions of themselves. Talk a little bit about what was going through your mind at that point, especially as it related to becoming more emotionally intelligent. As I said, somebody telling me that I needed to take care of myself or that I needed whatever it was that I needed, just telling me that wasn't enough. So the emotional intelligence course showed me a couple things and and gave me tools in my toolbox all of a sudden. It wasn't just hey, Jen, stop this, or hey, Jen, start this. It was, okay, let's take a look at this. What's going on? What's going on in the brain? Um, You know, we talked about mirrored actions. And one of the things that I I remember, and this is personally, my husband and I, we we live in a condo, it's small. um, So we tend to eat dinner on the couch in front of the TV. Horrible habit, but it's just, it's how we're, uh, it's how the configuration of the dining room and the kitchen is that it just, that's what we do. So, but I don't know how many times we'd sit down, we eat, we talk, you know, TV would be on, but at the end of the meal, I would get up and I would put my plate in the kitchen, put it in the dishwasher, walk back. And then eventually he would get up and do the same thing. Well, then I was like, well, why am I walking into the kitchen without taking his plates? So I started to do that is when I was done and he was done, then I would take both plates. Can I have your plate, sweetheart, and take it into the kitchen? And I started to notice that within a couple of weeks, he started doing the same thing. And I was like, oh, okay. And then anytime I would get up and go into the kitchen, it would be, honey, can I get you something? I'm, I'm here. Do you need some water or something? And then now every time one of us goes in the kitchen, it's, hey, do you need something? So I started to realize that was happening. And so I started doing that at the office too, you know, saying thank you to somebody uh, for staying late or doing something. And, and people started to pick up on that. But I also noticed that I was picking up married actions of things that I didn't want to do. And so trying to change those, um, which was difficult in others, is I don't want to do that anymore just because you're doing it. That, you know, trying to change that culture of, of certain things, whether that's, you know, being late to meetings or something. So trying to always be on time for meetings or being cognizant of people's schedule. If you have to cancel, you do it within, uh, you know, 24 hours or whatever the time frame could be. And trying to do that. And I also learned that 
my achievement orientation is very high. I have very high standards for myself, almost to the point where I am really hard on myself and always have been. I always feel like I've had to work harder than everybody else. And I started doing more exercises of self-compassion. One of them was simply imagine something difficult in your life and your friend comes to talk to you and they've had that situation. What would you say to them? And I would be very empathetic. That's horrible. You know, what can I do for you? You're a great person. But I think about what I did to myself in that same situation and I beat myself up of like, you know, even things that were not my fault or, you know, had happened to me that I didn't necessarily do where I had made a mistake. And I was just so mean to myself and started to realize, you know, I'm really going to be only my biggest cheerleader. Not that there's not other cheerleaders, but I'm having the most conversations with myself in my head. I'm ultimately responsible for myself. I need to be my own cheerleader. So it really started a reflection on myself and learning to love myself, um, which is still very difficult for me. Um, And once I started to feel better about that and stop comparing myself as well, um, which I think women tend to do a little bit more than men. I don't know if that's true. I just feel that way. But concentrating on I am where I am and it's okay to be here and I can want more, but let's worry about today. Let's not worry about two years from now. Let's not worry about all that and just really concentrate on myself and be at peace with myself because if I'm not at peace with myself, I can't be at peace with anybody else. So really taking that self-reflection and realizing some of the things that I was still doing both to myself and to others were a reaction that I had as a seven-year-old child, you know, when my father abandoned us and I couldn't be that seven-year-old anymore. You know, I needed new tools to deal with things. And that's what that class brought to me. That's incredible. I'm still kind of overwhelmed by all of that. Yeah. I don't even know how to respond to it. So I'll just move on. We're going to move into our closing. And um, as you're totally aware of and comfortable with, we're going to wrap things up with our closing appreciations. Robin, I always appreciate you. You know that. Um, It has been an incredible two years um, throughout this entire, um, you know, apprenticeship program, the Leather and Apron Club, the Emotional Intelligence, the mentors, the tribe, everything. And I am so proud and so happy to be now a part of the team. And because as you and I talked, telling my story of where I've come from. And I I really wish that people kind of knew me two years ago like you did and where I've come. Like it's still hard for me to put words to that. Um, but you letting me tell my story, which as we talked about is is the next part of my journey and where I see some of this going in my life is being able to tell that story. So thank you for letting me come and do that today. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, well, I kind of referenced it earlier uh, and it was what it was what I was going to share in the first place. I appreciate your work. And in all these conversations that we've had the last several months about uh, the possibility of you somehow or another getting involved in Junto and how that might shake out and what the possibilities are, and then ultimately coming to this conclusion, what really put me over the hump was when I realized that, uh, when I concluded, I should say, that if Jen worked that hard on herself, I can only imagine what the work might be like with us as a business. And so I'm really excited about the future because I've seen the work you've done in the past year and a half or so, and knowing that you're going to bring that same fervor and ethic and devotion to 
kind of more conventional work while still continuing to work on yourself. Jay Rudman is a serial entrepreneur uh, who has started and sold multiple companies and is currently the CEO of Top Step Trader, one of our alumni companies. Uh, back when Top Step was in our apprenticeship program, Jay was matched up to be the CEO mentor for Top Step's founder and then CEO, Michael Patak. And some of you may know Michael, who has already been a guest on Flourishing Together. And on that episode, I believe he shares a little bit of his side of this story, which was um, really fun to hear. In any case, uh, soon after Top Step finished the program, Michael asked Jay uh, to join the company as their chief growth officer. And then a short eight months after that, Michael stepped aside as CEO and asked Jay uh, to take the reins of the business. And since then, uh, Jay has led a Top Step's growth to nearly 50 people. He's helped shape an incredibly strong culture. And as you'll hear, uh, also build an aligned executive team where each person complements one another in a beautiful way. He's a poster child, in my opinion, for effective leadership in so many ways, some of which you'll hear today and some of which you'll hear in a future episode. And speaking of flourishing together episodes, uh, Jay holds a particularly special place in my heart uh, because he told me before our conversation that he had listened to every episode at that point. And uh, so it goes without saying that I'm probably going to try to hold him to continuing that record uh, going forward. Um, looking forward to our conversation here with Jay. Well, I'm thrilled on this episode to have with us a longtime friend and um, close colleague, Jay Rudman, uh, who I've known for eight to 10 years. Neither of us can figure out exactly when we met, but it was around that time frame. And uh, since then, uh, we've built a really interesting multifaceted relationship that kind of was accelerated or stimulated by him coming on board to the Junto Institute as a as a mentor. And so I want to welcome you, Jay, to Flourishing Together. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. So we're going to kick things off with uh, seeing how you're feeling here this afternoon. Absolutely. Two things jump out at the for me from the emotional wheel. The first one is inspired to be here. And uh, before we went on air... We had chit-chatted that I had listened to all of the previous podcasts. Which and so incredible. I'm s inspired by what I've heard, but also little and all of sitting in this chair because it's pretty hallowed ground. You had some great guests on this before. <laughs> um, also a little anxious, to be quite honest. Um, I'm usually sitting in your chair asking my team all the hard questions. You know my leadership style. It's a lot of questioning. And now get to turn the tables and you get to ask the hard questions. So a little anxious about that. Good. Well, and, and we know that that anxiousness is often a good thing. Yes. I'm feeling um, quite euphoric and sentimental, uh, which has been going since this morning as a result of uh, a couple interactions I had with uh, with my daughters, um, both this weekend and, and today. And um, I got to admit, feeling a little proud as well, based on what you just said. Well, like, I don't know yet. yet. If anybody else has listened listening. every episode. I'm so, listening. Yeah, I'm, I'm always humbled by the fact that people actually do listen. It is um, a nice feeling. Um, so let's go ahead and move on into um, our conversation. And since you have listened to them all, <laughs> you know how we start. I know how we start. Yeah. Exactly. So let's just dive in. What is your first recollection of leadership? 
it took me a long time to think this one through. Uh, leadership to me is really a two-sided coin, right? It's your first interaction with a leader that stood out in your memory and the first time you were probably a leader yourself. And I don't even know you know this about me, but I'm a huge sailor. I love sailing. Yeah, I can see in your face you had no idea. So I remembered back my very first, this is kind of a three-part story, so settle in. But um, first interaction with sailing was when I was probably four or five. It was a family camp. Went out with my mom, dad, and sister. Windy day. Before we knew it, the boat had flipped over. Had my life jacket on, perfectly safe. Not a dangerous experience by any stretch. I do remember very clearly my father being very nervous and anxious, but I was too young to remember, to be quite honest. Um, but we got back in the boat and everything was perfectly fine. And I set that up because I actually fell in love of sailing from that experience. It was just an exciting, enthralling, you know, uh, really cool experience. And so later on, when I actually was a camper myself, was probably my first recollection of leadership because when you're out on a sailboat, there's a captain and that captain is in charge. And we would go out with a counselor and that counselor was the leader of the boat. And what was really cool is even though the boat was full of kids all wanting to have fun, I was the kid who wanted to listen and learn how to sail. And so I remember very distinctly listening to the captain of the boat, basically providing guidance as to what to do. And I was listening and it was remarkable how we were able to make that boat go forward at whatever speed. And Leadership's kind of like that because you have both the mechanism and the people, and that's what really sailing is all about. The third part of this story is when I was the leader, going full circle, family camp again, much later teenager at this point in time, I actually asked my dad to go back on the sailboat. I don't think he had been out again since that very first incident because he was more terrified than I was. Went out there, just him and I. And he looked at me, I remember this so well. He goes, Jay, like, how long have you been sailing by yourself on the lake? And I looked at him and I said, actually, Dad, this is the first time. It was just you and me. You know, I hadn't been out as the captain myself. I'd always been a mate, not a captain. So it was a really cool experience. And actually asking him to, you know, help me sail that boat was really cool. And then in the middle of it, I remember I said, hey, Dad, you want to tip the boat over? And he looked at me really cautiously because he remembered that experience from when I was a toddler. And he said, sure. And we tipped it over and flipped it back and it was perfectly fine. So, and I've loved to sail ever since. What a great story. Well, thank you. Okay. So as I shared in my uh, introduction, you have started and run several different companies of your own. Um, as a result, you've been a CEO before, you're a serial entrepreneur, and you've been mentoring with us now, I think, four or five years correct total. And I'm sure you've done other mentoring as well. But specifically as it relates to the work you've done with Junto, where you've worked one-on-one -on -one with several CEOs, mm -hmm. what have you learned about yourself mm -hmm. in that whole process? Right. I've actually introduced a new word into my lexicon is that it's actually co-mentoring and not mentoring because it's as much about a give and take as anything else. And I know people often say in the mentoring world, you're going to learn as much as you give, and it's so true. And I found that exceptionally true intergenerationally because what I can bring is a little bit of experience, a little bit of seasoning, but more so probably the long-term perspective, like this is a moment in time, you know, deep breaths, we'll get through this. And even some pattern recognition, I've seen this before, mm -hmm. I can predict with some level of confidence the outcome of it. 
But what I really enjoy is learning from the others. And what I learn from the others is, you know, having done it a few times, you get a little calloused. You 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 forget about the energy and passion and mm. excitement and enthusiasm of the the young eager entrepreneur and actually kind of bounces off the other individual into yourself and you get a little bit reinvigorated. So I've learned that I need that energy, mm. that co-mentoring actually does that for me. Yeah. And I also jokingly always tell my team that I want to be as culturally irrelevant as possible. I don't know anything about the new TV shows or movies or more importantly, the new leadership styles and be it about culture or diversity or an inclusion. I know we might talk about those factors later, but I have found that connecting to the younger generation of entrepreneurs has really, again, provided a lot of ideas and thoughts about how that new crop of leaders is thinking about trying to improve the world. And again, I really thrive off of that. One of uh, my favorite stories in the seven years that we have run uh, the Junto Institute is the story of you and Michael Patak who's the founder of Top Step Trader, a company that Jay now runs. And uh, Michael was a participant in the program, one of our apprentices. And at the start of the program, we matched him up with you as his CEO mentor. And uh, as I shared in the, uh, in the introduction, uh, not only did you guys have a successful mentoring relationship, um, and when I call successful, I mean it was completed, uh, I have no idea how it went. Um, but most importantly, what came out of that was a continued relationship that then resulted in your taking over uh, as the company, um, as Michael's handpicked successor. And although you accepted this role kind of eyes wide open, you, you kind of knew what you were getting yourself into to an extent, um, you still experienced some challenges with him uh, during that first year, which I believe other founder CEOs and also their successors can learn from. Um, so I'd love for you to share uh, some of the experiences that you had during that period, and if there's a next time, what you might do differently as a result of that. Great question. So to add some additional color to the context you just laid out, you're right. We we talked behind closed doors for, I think, what, nine months as part of the Junto process. So, But what's fascinating about that is you're completely insulated from the rest of the organization. You hear it, and you hear it and see it through Michael's voice and eyes alone. So one of the first things I said of Michael, you know, I love what you got here. This is really interesting, really compelling. I have to start talking to the rest of the organization because your perspective is only one perspective. So lesson number one is you have to appreciate others' opinions and perspectives on that. That just seems, you know, obvious, mm -hmm. but it's clearly important. Two is that it, it takes a long time. Right, you can't speed up this process. Everyone says you're taking, you know, the baby from, or you're taking the keys of the car, or whatever, you know, um, proverb or metaphor people use. You truly are, and you have to really take your time. And I think two things helped in that instance. The first one is, is uh, I found a really good book. Um, it's called Rocket Fuel by Gino Wickman and Mark Winters. So Gino Wickman's the traction author. He has a, a couple of follow-up books. And mm -hmm. this book is called Rocket Fuel. And the intent behind Rocket Fuel is, is that in order to accelerate an organization to provide the rocket fuel, you need two things. You need the vision and you need the operator. And as soon as I was able to explain to Michael, you're the vision, I'll operate, and here's the book, and here's a third-party validation of that approach, he bid in totally. Mm -hmm. 
So we both read the book contemporaneous. I had not read it. I had read the summary and said, this is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we read it. We met weekly. We discussed it. And we both referred to it mm -hmm. quite frequently. So I think that third party really helped. And then to kind of build on that is, and I probably, if I had to do it over again, I would rely on this second piece even more is third party advisors, third party peripheral, like um, people whispering in ears, that kind of stuff. So we have an advisory board, which you know. Um, I would lean on the advisory board more. If you have a board of directors, I'd lean in the board of directors more. But I'd also lean on you know, trusted people and whoever is in Michael's world or in my world to rely on that. There's best friends, accountants, entourage, lawyers, you know, you name it. Because I think it's important to appreciate what they're saying to Michael or they're saying to me. And I probably underplayed that because it was Michael and I would get along fabulously in a room and then maybe they'd go home or I'd go home or whatever. And other voices came into the mix and you'd have to appreciate what those voices were. And I probably underplayed that and I would advise everyone to appreciate that even more. Yeah. That was, that was really great. I want to make sure I got the language right. When you talked about giving it time. Mm-hmm. You said giving it time, right? Right. Because the flip side of that is allowing it to take time. Right. Which is, and you know, I know Michael pretty well. Right. Not as well as you do now, right. but he's not the, he's no. not a guy who lets things take time. Right. And so what I have to do, and I'll use Michael as the archetype, but this works for everyone, is that I have to get Michael to appreciate that balance is important. And for everything that Michael wants to do quickly, it's my responsibility to slow it down. And when Michael brings product ideas, because he's amazing at product ideas, it's my responsibility to bring in the business perspective of how we can execute against this, both in terms of capital and people and other resources. When he talks about doing things um, you know, tomorrow, I have to say, well, Let's make sure that we actually have the capacity to, to do that. So the concept of counterbalance actually works really well with him. And then it becomes kind of your role. You're an actor in the play. And hey, Michael, I want you to play this role and I'll play that role. And then we can both appreciate that we're doing it for the right reasons. We both want the organization to be successful. And that yeah, my favorite line that I use quite frequently with my team is, it's, and I use this with Michael uh, all the time, is Michael once said to me, Jay, you don't worry about the product at Top Step enough. And I go, Michael, I don't have to worry about the product enough. You worry about it all day long. I got the rest of it. I can cover the rest of it. And so for him to appreciate that, hey, I'm relying on him for those product ideas, concepts, vision, and I can cover the rest of it, that becomes a good balance. So you mentioned that in your interactions with Michael, you said you take care of the product and I'll take care of running the business or you be the visionary and I'll be the operator. But interestingly enough, you're the CEO. And in the average company, the CEO is often, if not exclusively, the visionary. And there's someone else who's an operator. So even in Gina Wickman's book, Traction, he talks about the integrator, right? Alongside the, the visionary. So it's interesting because I would have thought, if if I didn't know better, because but I do know better, that you're the visionary, Melissa's the integrator. So how do the three of you balance and harmonize all of that? <laughs> Great question. And I think we're still a work in process. Clearly is not final. Um, so Melissa's a really key component to this whole right. conversation. 
But what she brings is a deep passion, love, and history about how, using the word integration, like how all the pieces fit together. What she doesn't have the expertise on is people side. Um, she doesn't have the expertise and clearly the capital side. Um, she doesn't have the expertise in thinking about how to synthesize Michael's thoughts about product and bring it into like a three or five year vision. So I can round out a lot of those pieces. And what's really nice is that because I know Michael's got my left flank and Melissa's got my right flank, I can really focus in on those things that I feel, you know, the business needs. Good. That helps. That actually helps me in a lot of ways. <laughs> okay. So my final question is, is something that I think is so timely because it's um, been a fairly recent development in the world of business. Um, I'd say, you know, maybe the last three years, um, I started seeing this pre me too, uh, but the language has really started to crystallize um, and it's, it is a movement and I think it's going to become normal if you will. Um, and that's this um, whole idea of diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. uh, and your dedication to that has been inspiring to me and also important. Um, and it, it is given the fact that we are part of Gen X where this didn't exist right. at all. And so it's inspiring to me because you've embraced it. Uh, you've embraced it as being something that's critical to the business, to your team, um, and also to the Chicago community. Where does that come from? And um, what business outcomes are you seeing with it? Like what tangible outcomes are you guys experiencing um, and then third, and I know this makes the question even bigger is how has your mindset about this evolved in these last few years since you've been with Top Step? Right. Well, alluding to your earlier point about us being, you know, let's say seasoned, um, those I can't see through the microphone, there's lots of gray hair on my head. Um, the why behind this is really easy. Have kids. Like I have a son who's in high school and a daughter who's in college and it for lack of a better word, would piss me off if they did not have the opportunities because of the color of their skin, because of their gender identity, because of their religious affiliation. Like that is just unfair. And that unfairness drives me. Um, we have done a top step, um, an event the last couple of years around International Women's Day. And I get up on stage in front of an audience and basically say, I'm not up here because of me. I'm up here because of my daughter. Um, and if she doesn't have the doors open, then shame on me and shame on my generation and I'll fight like hell to ensure that she does. So that's the why. It's truly just primal family, like, damn it, let's do this. Right. Now, in terms of the organization, it's really interesting. So back in April of 2017, we did uh, with another Junto mentor with Kathy Carroll, who's been a, a, a guest on this show. Uh, we did um, kind of an offsite with leadership where we came up with, you know, the traditional mission, vision, values. And we had four values at the time, and diversity and inclusion were not one of those four values. And so two years later, this past April in 2019, I said, hey, Kathy, let's do a refresh on this because we've gotten a lot smarter and better and have kind of progressed as a, as a company. So let's redefine our four existing values and let's ask the leadership team to come with anything they think is missing from this. There was one value. We, we now have six, but there was one value that 
every single one of the leadership team independently with no prompting came to, and it was about diversity and inclusion. So you could tell it was in the core DNA of our business. We just had never put words behind it before. So what we did was we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a feel good, that it actually had to have business impact behind it. Um, so we actually went out there and there was a number of studies that say diversity and inclusion result in better business. And so we just took it and ran with it. So we came up with our own value that reflects that, that basically diverse people and ideas results in better business. And we believe it, not only because the study suggests it, but I want, just alluding back to my earlier comments of people sitting at the table have better ideas and are much closer to the problem. I need that diversity. And that can be in ideas. That can be in, again, skin color. It can be in so many different ways. And that's going to help me be better at what I do. So we need it as a business, and I'm going to make sure that it happens. Now, I will admit we don't have a great plan yet about how to make that happen. We've taken a first step. Mm -hmm. The first step is on the sourcing and recruiting side. We know that we're going to continue to grow in people. Just to put some you know, numbers behind it, we were at you know, 12 and then 25, and then we'll probably be at 50 and hopefully in 75, 80 next year. So you can see that we're going to continue to grow to the team. And we're going to do that by ensuring that we're talking to a diverse population out there. And it's caused a lot of great conversation. And sometimes those conversations don't resolve or converge on, a, on an answer. And I say amongst that team, I don't care because we're talking. And I think the conversation itself is important. Um, so we're really striving hard and thinking about how to find, how to source, how to recruit and onboard you know, a diverse population into our team. And then we'll take it the next step. That's all we've thought about yet, but I think it's a good first step. That's great. And for the benefit of um, our audience, this is not a recent thing. To provide some historical perspective, Michael Patak, who has also been uh, a guest on, on the podcast, and who is a white male from the Midwest who comes from the world of trading and finance, right? So almost on the surface, stereotypical example of someone who may not pay attention to this. But Melissa was the first team member that came on board. And when they were in Junto with 10 or 12 people in the program, I know that they had at least three women on the team and people of color and younger and older. So Michael is blind to all of these uh, labels and all of these um, attributes, human human attributes. And I think it's only, like you said, it's baked into the DNA. It's been there from day one. Absolutely. Right? So you get to be kind of a steward of that. 100%. And I wanted to stress this because it's, you know, today we hear a lot of companies who are making an intentional effort to become more diverse mm -hmm. and more inclusive, but this has always been a part of TST. And I think it goes back to what you said earlier that, yes, it's been a value from the beginning. It just wasn't put into words. Absolutely. 100% agree. Yeah. All right. So as we uh, come to a, a wrap here, um, we're going to finish like we do um, all Junto sessions, and that's with a round of closing appreciations. Wonderful. Well, I'll go ahead and start if that's okay. Um, thought about this one in advance, and I want to appreciate something I made up, which I'm going to call purposeful serendipity. And the serendipity part is, is I did go back and try to find the last, the first time, excuse me, that Ram and I connected. And I don't remember who made the connection or how it occurred, 
but it's remarkable all the steps that occurred from then till now that are just serendipity from, you know, us first meeting to Junto to you putting me in as a mentor to Michael to my becoming CEO of Top Step to now sitting here, you know, uh, talking to you. But it's been purposeful too because serendipity just doesn't happen even though by definition I think it's supposed to just happen. Like it takes a lot of effort of outreach and networking and conversations and trust and belief, et cetera. So I'm really appreciative of both the purposefulness that we've taken to get here today, but also just the coincidence of the intersections. Thank you. Uh, and you didn't mention that both of our older daughters went to the same high school in Chicago. Correct. And for those who don't know Chicago, um, these are schools where kids from all around the city come to. So they're not our neighborhood school. And then uh, your daughter just enrolled in the same college where my daughter's about to graduate That is from. also true. So, yeah. Part of that serendipity. Yes. Thank you for that. This is going to come out a little bit cliched and trite, but I think um, so I'll, I'll have to unpack it a little bit. But I appreciate your leadership. Thank you. And you may be one of the stronger examples of what we are trying to help younger people with or first-time founders with from a standpoint of becoming the leader that they're capable of becoming. And as I was reflecting on the questions I wanted to ask you and some of the things I kind of mentioned, especially that convergence of humanity and rigor in business, I realized that they captured a lot of these traits and attributes that we are working really hard to help our apprentices and our alumni with. And so to a great extent, you are like a role model for us that we can now refer to for them. And I know you've been that for Michael and Melissa and everybody at Top Step, and perhaps even for a few of the others who you've mentored. But I think going forward, I'm going to make a more intentional effort at leveraging that throughout the whole community. Well, thank you. I so appreciate, appreciate those kind words, and I'm always happy to contribute. So it'd be my pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Jay. My pleasure. Awesome thank you. you. Many of the people in uh, Junto's tribe know that I love definitions and that I often use the phrase, words matter. And after listening to and reflecting on my conversations with uh, both Jen Davis and Jay Rudman, uh, two words really stood out. Uh, one is relationship, and the second is partnership. And uh, it was mostly the latter that stood out because both of them uh, referenced the concept either directly or indirectly. And that caused me to then um, think about the word relationship. And, and here's why. Uh, in recent years, I've been hearing a lot of people talk about people being in relationship versus being in a relationship. And I was always intrigued by that. Um, and the more I heard it, the more I became curious. And I still haven't taken the time or the opportunity to research that, think about it, process it. But I just find it interesting that a relationship or a partnership you know, comes across as something that we engage into and that we form. And, and maybe as a result, there's something that's, that's formal there. Uh, the obvious ones being a business partner or a life partner, um, even more formally, uh, a spouse. But this whole idea of being in relationship 
to me connotes closeness, togetherness, movement towards something that is common, mutual, and something that that both or more parties, you know, effectively desire. And as a result, I I realize that we don't do the same thing with the word partnership. That we don't use this phrase in partnership a whole heck of a lot. We do, I think, in the form of uh, just kind of a, as an idiom um, that you know I can say that the Junto Institute is in partnership with a blank organization, or in order for us to accomplish this goal, we are going to pursue it in partnership with that organization. But I'm really referring to this idea of closeness and togetherness, and. To kind of take it one step further, I'm going to uh, actually read off the the definitions of each word um, just as a springboard to getting back to uh, Jen and uh, Jay's conversations. So the definition of relationship is the state of being related or interrelated, a state of affairs existing between those having relations, and the relation connecting or binding participants in a relationship. And the definition of partnership is a relationship usually involving close cooperation between partners having specified and joint rights and responsibilities. And then here's one that I really love is one of the definitions of partnership referred to partners. Um, And so I clicked on that link and the definition of partner is one associated with another, especially in an action. So kind of bringing this back to Jay and Jen, um, whose conversations inspired the pursuit of these words, both of them referred to being in partnership with different people or different organizations. And in a couple of times they may, they used the word and other times they didn't, but referred to it. Um, and on a side note, which I think is important is each of them also talked about vulnerability. And it occurred to me that uh, based on my experience, for partnerships to work optimally requires a heightened level of vulnerability. And so with Jay Rudman, you know, he spoke to the relationship that he has with him between him and Michael Patak um, and being in partnership with Michael as a CEO and CVO. And Michael playing the role that he was assuming and Jay playing the role that he was assuming. Uh, Jay talked about him and Melissa, his COO, in partnership and how they complement one another and the contributions that she makes and how they are associating with one another, especially in the action of running the company. And he also, at the beginning of the conversation, talked about being in partnership proverbially with his co-mentors, which as an aside, I love that that phrase and, and is one that I'm probably going to start using a little bit more often. Um, but this idea of not just with the uh, mentees who he is in partnership with, but also in a reverse mentoring role, being in partnership with them where he is learning uh, from them and to some degree is being taught by them um, through the conversations that they have. And when I was thinking about Jay's conversation, it it actually caused me to think about um, being in partnership with my business partner, my former business partner, but still my co-founder, um, Catherine, and 
how when when she left the business a couple of years ago, it was um, it was a, a big change for our business at Junto, but but also for me because we complemented each other very very well. And you know, as I shared with her back then, I wasn't just losing a business partner, but I was also losing um, a co decision maker, a sounding board, an accountability partner, a complement. A contributor, a co-contributor to our identity. And it was all because of the fact that we were in partnership with one another, um, taking action on a day-to-day basis towards something that we were both pursuing. And while we still technically are in partnership, and she is technically also a business partner, we're not acting in that regard on a day-to-day basis like we were at that point in time. And then moving on to Jen Davis, um, what was really wonderful to hear was how she is in partnership with her husband. And she, you know, she she gave a couple examples of how she has um, how she had shared her experience during the first weekend um, of Junto with her husband, and then talking about um, getting something from from the fridge for her husband and vice versa, and this whole idea of, of taking action as a result of being in partnership. And then, you know, without again using the word, um, made reference to this idea of partnership in the context of her last position and and the company that she was most recently with prior to joining our team. And her recognizing that as a key executive and as a key employee of the company, she was losing the partnership of the company that she worked with. And that they were no longer able to take action together with one another towards the common goal that they were pursuing. So it's it's really fascinating, and these are thoughts that I'm I'm sharing kind of in the moment um, because I've only you know listened to their conversations, um, read a little bit of the transcript, and haven't had a whole lot of time to digest it entirely. Um, so this is you know pretty fresh in my mind. But I'm really intrigued about talking more about this idea of being in partnership with people and organizations and it carrying some greater weight than just the word relationship. Uh, and you know, both of these words are used fairly ubiquitously. Um, we, we throw them around as, as very common words, but I think they carry so much more meaning than we probably give them uh, credit for. And, and yes, I realize that they're just words. But again, words matter. So this whole idea of partners and being in partnership uh, resonated even deeper for me uh, because a few years ago, I read the book, um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things uh, by Ben Horowitz. And in that book, he relates the, um, the story of his relationship with Michael Ovitz, who is a founder, maybe the founder of a creative artists agency, um, one of the largest talent agencies in the, in the world. And he talked about how Michael Ovitz um, uses the word partner as the title for most of their employees. And back then I, I thought that's a brilliant idea. And I didn't do much with it then, but then this past uh, spring and summer, as Jen Davis and I were talking about her joining the Junto team, I made a decision that anyone who joins the Junto Institute will have the title of partner, regardless of how senior they are, how junior they are, or what function, uh, what their primary function is in the business. 
And the reality is that titles today uh, for me don't really mean anything. What matters is that I'm working with people who are aligned with the direction we're going and we're pursuing a course of action toward that common vision, that common mission, um, those common goals. And so in truth, we are in partnership with one another. And for all I care, they can use any title they want on their LinkedIn um, because that is for them. That's what matters to them. But for me, um, it doesn't matter if they're an assistant, an associate, a director, a manager, um, C-level, none of that matters. What matters is the work that we do, the actions that we're taking on a daily basis. So Jen, as you may imagine, has that word partner. What's really exciting you know, for me is that now that uh, someone like Jen Davis is on board as a partner in Junto, that I can actually use uh, these new um, and fresh reflections on kind of what I think about the word or the phrase of being in partnership or being in relationship as we pursue our partnership and our relationship. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. This episode was produced by Dante32.